Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache. But it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, CTC focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get an exclusive 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout. As China bottomed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Noelle Axon, author of the Crypto is Macro Now Report. Hi, Noelle. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Maggie. Hi. Great to be with you. How are you today? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Thirsty Thursday, as they say here, um, as I am saying this week, because it has been really interesting. And even though the markets, not all markets, some markets are moving a lot. It feels like there's so much churning underneath the surface and there's a lot of confusion. People are trying to figure out what's going on. We asked the question, has China bottomed at the very start? The flip side to that is the other question I think everyone's asking, which is whether U.S. stocks are topping. So so let's start there and take a look at what's happening here in the U.S. We have the S&P 500 sitting just shy of 5,000 with treasury yields moving higher. And Fed officials, as many as can find a microphone, all warning that they will be cautious about cutting and that maybe not as many rate cuts are coming as the market seems to think. It doesn't seem, seem to feel like all these things can be true. What, what's your view of what's happening here in the U.S.? does sometimes feel, Maggie, like we're missing a big part of the story. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And that apparently is very typical for when the market is nearing the end of a cycle. But then again, I do have to confess, I've been expecting this for some time. And I personally, were I an investor, which I'm not, would have missed a very large part of the run-up. It doesn't make a lot of sense simply because, in my opinion, the U.S. market is very much navel-gazing at the moment. It is not taking into account what's happening with its largest trading partners, and I'm thinking of China and Europe mainly, it's not taking into account the buildup of tension, it's not taking into account the astonishing report that we got yesterday from the Congressional Budget Office, which even if those forecasts are realistic, and I think they're undershooting it, even if it's, it's in a very frightening fiscal scene coming in the United States. The stock market does not seem to be taking any of this into account. And maybe there's some ways to go before it does. Or maybe that reckoning, especially given the loud messaging that you mentioned, Maggie, maybe that reckoning will be coming soon. I'd given up trying to time this because I would have gotten it wrong a lot over the past six months. Yeah. And part of that, I'm so glad you mentioned the fiscal because part of the timing that's been so difficult is that we have uh, this unprecedented fiscal spend. And, and the tail of that is just so hard to gauge. Um, I want to talk about that in a second. Um, but um, when we're looking at the U.S. economic strength, Andrea Seno-Larsen dropped a new Seno signals on our platform. I'm talking about the same thing, just the surprise of the U.S. economy. Let's have a listen to a clip from that, and then we'll talk on the other side. But if we look at the gross domestic product um, of the United States, 
we've had two consecutive quarters of substantial positive surprises. Both the third and the fourth quarter basically delivered extreme growth, in my humble opinion, relative to expectations. And it seems like the economy is actually accelerating even from that outset into 2024. If we look at a couple of indicators of why that is, um, first of all, we have an explosion, um, basically in, in outright terms, in the exports of semis from Korea to the US. Uh, if we look at the shipments of semis from South Korea, one of the uh, large suppliers of semis globally, we see a large increase year on year. That's what you see in the dark blue uh, line here. And typically that is a strong but early signal that the manufacturing cycle is actually improving in the uh, US economy. Why do we see such cyclicality in semis? Well, uh, semiconductors are cyclical um, as a consequence of the whole uh, semiconductor space being cyclical of nature. Uh, and when there is an increase in demand for semis, it's typically a sign that the overall economy is improving from a cyclical perspective. And you can see that full episode on our platform. If you're watching on YouTube and you are not a full Real Vision member, go to our website, join our community so you can get access to all that great stuff. So, Noel, do, we, we don't seem to be getting that slowdown, but now people are looking at some of this information and wondering, is it going to come at all? I mean, are we, you know, we're kind of back to that, is it no landing situation? Everything has to land eventually. That's my theory. And I do believe that we're all very much underestimating the snowball effect of the unemployment, which right now is looking great. That was a blowout report we got last year, last year, week. God, it feels like longer ago, doesn't it? Last week. But uh, we all know that when unemployment starts to move, it moves fast. You and I have talked about that before. There is a snowball effect that we're overlooking there. The manufacturing is strong, but then again, manufacturing is around, what, 10% of US GDP. It's the services side that are also providing a huge amount of growth. We saw that in the ISM data this week. I do have something to add, though, on the chip situation, which is fascinating. Yes, South Korea is exporting more chips because there, the demand for chips does seem to be picking up. And a lot of this is going to be coming from defense spending. We're going to see increased defense spending around the world. This is one of the reasons why I think the budget office def uh, estimates are, are low-balling. But there is also another thing to take into account when it comes to the correlation between chips and manufacturing demand. And that is chips are no longer just a thing you put in objects. Chips are, chips are a geopolitical item, much like oil, and they are being mm. stockpiled by governments around the world that are worried that supplies might be cut off if, for instance, tensions escalate in the South China Seas or if there are other supply chain issues. Chips matter and the world cannot survive without them. So I think the demand for chips is not just to put into things anymore. I do think there's some geopolitical factors going in there. It's not even taking into account the possibility that China might decide to weaponize chips. China is seeing lower demand for chips, but it is ramping up its investment in its chip production. Why? My theory is that it plans to use them to flood the world with low-end chips, and it's also ramping up production of high-end chips. Chips are going to become a weapon, much like Russia weaponized oil and gas at the beginning, when it, uh, beginning of the Ukraine war. You, it's such a great point, because if that's the case, then maybe you can't just look at it as an economic barometer or a, a signal of manufacturing health. You have to look at it through a different lens 
um, which is really fascinating. And another, uh, you know, I, I sort of just guess adds to the confusion of what's, you know, trying to see into the future because these indicators that we used as signposts are suddenly, you know, same thing with jobs. We were all scratching our head, huge jobs number, but we see the layoff notices every day coming out. We see every single day, we see reports of uh, companies laying off people. So what's the lag on all that? It's a little bit, it's a little bit tough to decipher. Let me ask you about the fiscal point that you made, which is super interesting. So we have that just trillions of dollars of fiscal spending, three different acts in the U.S., uh, which pumped or at least earmarked a lot of spending, government spending. Uh, but the feeling was that, okay, that's done. We're tapped out. That's not going to continue anymore. So that's going to be a a, a sort of, um, you know, a headwind that the economy's facing. And now that that's gone, that's maybe the people who are looking for recession thinking that it, the economy is going to lose that support. But when you're talking about increased defense spending, that doesn't sound like fiscal spending that's ramping down. Exactly. And, you know, if only, Maggie, if only that was it on the big blowout bills. But let's pull on the, the, the Congressional Budget Office report that came out yesterday. There's There were several statistics in there that blew me away. And one of them is that for 2024, the CBO expects net interest payments to exceed defense spending. And with what's going on in the world, Maggie, that is absolutely crazy. We know that China is easily outspending the United States. We know that China's trying to catch up with the United States. The Chinese Navy is trying to catch up with the US Navy in terms of its blue water capabilities. We know that uh, the US Navy is having problems recruiting. We know that maintenance is an issue, according to a Newsweek report that was out late last year. There are a lot of issues that point to a greater need for defense spending. And yet, no, we're spending more for 2024, according to the official estimates, on net interest. On the mm. net, the total expected income from individual tax payments this year, Maggie, one, one third of them, one third of your tax payments, Maggie, are going to be going to pay interest on the government debt. By 2034, 10 years from now, it is expected that the the United States will be paying more on interest, on its debt, than the entire budget deficit for last year. These are all conservative estimates because they do mm. not take into account the significant ramp up in defense spending that is going to be needed, not just by the United States, but by pretty much everyone as walls go up and as military conflicts continue to escalate around the world. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, which is just frightening to think about. And 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 one reason that despite what we're seeing on the economic front, a lot of folks, Raul included, think that we're just going to see more easing because they just simply can't afford the interest payments. I mean, this is the, you know, the the sort of um part of the equation that we're all trying to wrap our head around. Let's talk a little bit about uh about China. Um 
So certainly all of these geopolitical concerns, we get asked about Taiwan a lot and, you know, uh, China's intentions there. We know it's going to be a big talking point in the upcoming U.S. election. But a lot of people looking at China see a very weak economy. We have capital flowing out. In fact, I think that Bo just put in the um, in the chat, China's a disaster, jobs reports like a sleight of hand, U.S. consumers tapped out. So trade-wise, they're in trouble and insiders are selling like crazy. We ha- we did see those capital flows out. The market's been under pressure. Um, do you, wh- what do you see happening in China? What are you watching? Does it seem like officials have a handle on what's going on from an economic point of view? I would say no, uh, to take that in order, uh, no, they don't yet, but they will, because what's the alternative? They are going to do what they need to do. And that is part of the spending issue that we were talking about. In terms of China has dreadful economic growth, it certainly looks like that from some of the unemployment figures, from the property crisis that they're having. Let's remember that it was 5.2% in 2023. And of course, if you believe that figure, you know, that's a whole nother thing. What figures coming out of China actually, can we trust? There's not exactly a lot of transparency, but even the official estimates for 2024, if I remember correctly, are perhaps around 5%, maybe a bit less, 4.8. That's still pretty darn good. That's still a lot more than the United States is expected to grow in 2024. Anyways, even if China does have maybe 2% growth in 2024, that's still not terrible. Let's bear that in mind. The stock market was the really worrying part. I've been saying for some time that I wasn't really buying into the Chinese liquidity injections are going to boost risk assets around the world, including crypto, which is what I tend to focus on. I wasn't really buying into it because the interventions so far have been very targeted, what modest, if you could say, but they've been very targeted. They've been telling banks to lend more to construction and agriculture. That's not going to spill out into the markets. Mm. But on Monday, I I changed my mind. On Monday, the bloodbath that we saw in in the stock markets was really alarming. Insider selling, yes, because they do they do see what's coming down the terms down the pipe in terms of investments. But there's a lot of other things going on in Chinese insider stock investments as well. One, they see that individual that people are really reluctant to invest because they are not certain of the constancy, the consistency and constancy of official policy. Uh, mm. Two, they're, they are expecting an invasion of Taiwan, and they know that this is going to change the geopolitical landscape a lot, as well as hurt some of China's trade issues. Uh, three, they are not really trusting the government's promise to support the market. I think that turned around Mm. on Monday. I think when they saw the huge amount of buying that happened late Monday, a lot of it obviously has to have come from state funds. We don't have confirmation of that as far as I'm aware, but it has to have because the volumes were off the charts. Um, Maybe the trust that now the government does mean it. Maybe the trust, maybe that is going to start to come back. And I think the symbolic changing of the head of the securities regulator is also very significant. And the timing is significant. A complete shift in the policy regarding market support just before the Lunar New Year holiday I think that is important. So I changed my mm. mind on China. I do think we're going to get the liquidity that we've been waiting for. And I do think that even the government officials were frightened by what they were seeing in the markets this over the weekend and on Monday. Yeah, it's tricky because some people are trying to figure out, oh, do you step in because now you've got the 
potentially the authorities, uh, you know, bidding up the market. Uh, but it sounds like a very uncertain future. I mean, in that when you've got the state intervening to prop up prices, uh, you don't know where, where the real value is. And, and that uncertainty about future policy still holds true, right? It, it sounds like a very risky market to step into if you're looking for a bottom. It's not a healthy market. I mean, if the market is relying on government intervention, that's yeah. not a healthy market. Plus, all of the money that the government is pouring into the market to support our prices is money that is not going into perhaps more productive activities. And Xi Jinping has been going on and on over the past year about quality growth. I took this as a sign that he was not going to tolerate any kind of market speculation. That was not the kind of China that he wanted. He wanted quality growth, which I also took to mean a sign of preparing everyone for lower growth. Doesn't matter mm. if it's lower, it's quality. And when you're pouring money into the market just to keep stock prices up, you're kind of throwing that strategy out the window. Is it sustainable? They can print money, much like the United States. Can the United States keep on spending? Yes, it can print money. This isn't good news for either, uh, mm. either currency, to be honest, but what's the alternative? Yeah, gosh, that 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 last line just hit like a like a ton of bricks right you're so you're so right about that and i think um very often on uh on real vision we try to game out and talk about um and have people on who are trying to think really long term about what those consequences look like um for those of you who who watch our programs regularly you know that because let's be be honest we we want to be ready we we, we want to make sure that you know we are not collateral damage in if that if at all possible um we i was just telling Noel before we came on air uh cuz we were just going through a couple of things we wanted to hit on that um one of our editors uh Matt Foley the great Matt Foley for those of you who read the newsletters flagged a really terrific interview on our platform that you all need to go watch. That is exactly what Noel is just talking about. Um, if you go on spending, if you buy your own shares, if you intervene in your own markets and perpetuate this sort of extend and pretend situation, what happens? I mean, eventually the rubber hits the road. And Harry sat down with a fellow named Jared Bibler, who wrote a book on what happened in Iceland. Remember Iceland back in the great financial crisis? If you don't, um, it was... It was a big deal. They basically went bankrupt. And if you do think you remember, as I did, and I thought, well, Iceland, there's a lot of things that were happening at the time. You know, do we doing a deep dive into Iceland? We're all busy. I wasn't sure. I was down for that. It felt like a history lesson. It is not. It is a very, very important warning about looking for the signs of what can happen again. And he really sees this as a canary in the coal mine and, and a lesson and a warning about what the future might hold for all of us. Um, I started diving into it before we came on air and I was like, oh my gosh, how did I almost miss this? So I implore you all go check out this interview. Um, we're going to follow up and, and do something else on it because I think it might be that important. Um, and you know, history holds a lot of lessons, right, Noel, and we can't ignore them. Um, but that's what happens. And, and like in the faith of moving on and and um, I think at one point you said uh, the return of tourism to Iceland. <laughs> Things get papered over, um, but maybe they shouldn't have. Um, and, and he wrote a book about it. So um, I'm going to go check it out. I think we all should. But, but it is worrying. So this brings us to the next thing, Noel. Um, safe havens, right? So we, it sounds like we're talking about a situation where there's a lot of risk out there. And so people looking for safe havens. Does that play into the crypto story? Do you see these things as potential 
positives for the crypto story? Absolutely. I would say perhaps the positive for the crypto story. Obviously, there are many, many narratives. There's the technology growth and there's the community growth. There's a lot going on in crypto. But for me, the most important narrative for this year and perhaps next is going to be greater awareness of the utility of holding a seizure-resistant hard asset provably with a provable limited supply that cannot be confiscated, as I mentioned, that cannot, that is globally available. The advantages of holding that kind of hard asset, given the currency turmoil that we've already seen and that we are likely to continue to see over the course of the year, that I think is going to be increasingly key. We, we were, we've been talking about the spending that's coming in China and the US. And again, is there an end to that in sight? Probably not. Does this mean continued dilution of two of the leading fiat currencies in the world? Yes, probably. And I've had people say to me, yes, but that doesn't really matter. It's what they're worth relative to each other that mm -hmm. matters. And so the dollar being the cleanest shirt in the laundry basket is going to be just fine. And, and my response to that is actually no, because the world doesn't necessarily move on fiat currencies. The world runs on commodities, and it's the value of fiat currencies relative to a basket of finite commodities that is much more important, and the outlook for the leading fiat currencies does not look great. So therefore, investment theses are starting to take this into account. In a world of melting currencies, of melting ice cubes, if you like, what is going to remain standing? And that is generally hard commodities. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Have you ever experienced turbulence on a flight and wondered why? And you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, you've got no issue with visibility or anything? No, everything's peachy. Maybe you've sat on the tarmac for hours wondering why your plane isn't moving. Well, we're outside here. They're saying the ramp is closed. They won't let us park because of uh, Air Force One. Listen in on the conversations between pilots and air traffic controllers on the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast. 510 declaring an emergency. There's smoke in the cabin. I need to make a landing right now on 31 left. We have the most interesting, wild, and funny ATC recordings you will ever hear. Check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It's such an interesting way to think about it. Uh, so I've got, we've got so many good questions here. I want to get to them and some are uh, Bitcoin related, some are macro related. We're going to mix it up and go through all of them. So don't you worry if you're in, you know, one part of the world and you're not paying attention to the other. Um, as Noelle's report says, it's all becoming the same world. And as we're discussing, so we're going to pop around in them. Uh, G Blackburn asking, what's your early take on how the Bitcoin ETFs are trading? Really well. I mean, they were an outstanding success. Uh, the net inflows, uh, net uh, volume is huge. And the net inflows, I think so far, if I remember correctly, as of yesterday, stood at something like 1.7 billion, which is a lot. So doing really, really well. Obviously, after the hubbub of the launch, some of the excitement has died down, but this was always going to be a longer term game anyways. The Bitcoin ETF issuers are ramping up their marketing efforts slowly. A lot of the investment platforms, the RIAs, the brokers, they're starting to slowly get used to this. So it was never going to be a one and done. It's going to be a much longer term benefit, um, giving this access to people who are concerned about the kind of things that we've been talking about, giving them an easy way to get some kind of hedge exposure 
in their diversified portfolios. So doing really well. Um, we could see some tapering off of excitement, but again, net, this is going to be a strong benefit as an on-ramp, basically a very powerful on-ramp. Uh, so do you get the same, I think this is many people wonder about this now that we're talking about sort of this role as a hedge in, in dealing with some of the risks out there. Do you get the same hedge benefit by being in the ETF as opposed to being in Bitcoin itself. We know that there's difficulties for people who are not aware about how to do it and some um, hoops that you have to walk through to sort of hold that and own that and store it. But do you get the same hedge or are you giving up for the convenience of using ETF, giving up some of the hedging power? Yes, you are. You are. Let's be honest. But let's also be honest for a lot of people, for most people, Maggie, it's just really complicated. I have a terrible, I've been, you know, I've held Bitcoin now for many, many years, but it scares me because I'm terrible. I'm with numbers and I have a bad memory and I'm terrified of losing my seed phrase one day. And so if I have a problem with that, and I've been in this industry for a very long time, imagine someone who hasn't had that kind of experience. It is obviously much better to self-custody. It is safer. But for most people who are not concerned about the government knocking out their door and trying to confiscate their wealth, or who are not concerned about whether BlackRock or, or um, Invesco are reliable counterparties, people who aren't concerned about that, then what they are going to get is the diversification, the portfolio diversification that an asset such as Bitcoin can offer. It is very similar to holding a gold ETF rather than holding mm. gold in yeah. your backyard. I would argue that holding uh, Bitcoin in a self-custody wallet is easy than digging a hole or finding space in your shoe closet. But uh, for many people, it's just simply convenient. And there is the extra convenience of having your broker handle it for you. Yeah, no, definitely. But that's 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 super helpful and, and very interesting. Uh, so um, let's see. Uh, Macro Butler asking, do you think that we'll see another wave of bank failure in the regional banks? And any views on the spreading of a commercial real estate crisis outside the U.S.? Um, we're yes, talking a lot about yes to both. Yes to both. Ooh. Yes, definitely to both. I mean, there's an article, and when I forget it was if in the Financial Times or Bloomberg this morning, I forget talking about how the CRE, the commercial real estate crisis, is starting to seep over into Europe. And this is obviously going to be very alarming because our banking system here is a much deeper part of the economy than in the United States. Europe's economy is much more bank driven than that of the US. But going back to the US question, yet yeah, I don't think we're going to see more bank failures because I don't think the Fed is going to allow that to happen. Maybe a couple of smaller ones will be merged into some larger ones. Maybe there will be a couple of scares, but we've seen the Fed spring into action, not necessarily with easing. There are a lot of other tools that they can use. It ends up being the same kind of thing though. But yes, I don't think we are because the Fed won't let that happen. We are starting to see some strains though. Obviously we've seen some strains in the stock prices for quite some time. And we're going to start to see some strains in perhaps the credit markets as well. One thing I noticed this morning, Maggie, which ties in a bit to some of the potential strain that we're going to be seeing in banks, but also potential strain we're going to be seeing in the overall deficit of the United States is the price of credit default swaps on US government debt is roughly four times, no, three times now what it was a year ago. Ooh, really? It's much higher now than it was during the pandemic. Well, that's really interesting. And we'll have to, we'll have to investigate that. Um, boy, whenever we start talking about credit, credit uh, default swaps and all that kind of stuff, it kind of brings us back to the long arm of the great financial crisis. We can <laughs> never, yeah, we can, <laughs> we can never get away from it. Um, yeah. Okay. Ralph, this is a super interesting question. Does Noel see a future integration between AI and crypto or is it here? 
It's uh, not here yet, but it is starting. A lot of very smart people are working on this. And there are many that argue that AI needs crypto, especially if AI is going to be decentralized. And you could argue that if AI isn't decentralized, then we're probably all in deep trouble. And for AI to be decentralized, you are going to need decentralized data storage. I do think that this is a, a parallel trend that we're seeing in the crypto ecosystem, what we effectively call DPIN, which is decentralized mm. physical infrastructure. We, we've suffered the outages from Twitter. I mean, everyone loses it when Twitter is out or when Slack is out or when, God forbid, Zoom that we're talking to each other over should go out. And this happens with, with frequency, and it is going to become even more of a problem should the military tensions that we are seeing already emerge around the world head more into cyberspace. That's very likely. So um, AI is not safe until it is decentralized, and it can't really be decentralized without uh, drawing on blockchain technology. What that's going to look like in terms of where do you invest? To be honest, I have absolutely no idea now. The DPIN, decentralized physical infrastructure sector, is young. It is um, growing. Uh, we're going to see huge changes in that over the next few years. And I'm excited to see what emerges because it's necessary. Wow. Is, is she just not blown your mind, people, about the amount of things that you know about, Noel? It's like absolutely. <laughs> I wish, Maggie. Thank you. I absolutely <laughs> incredible. Um, I, I learned something every time. I, I was not thinking about it in that way. Um, and now, now I'm going to obsess about it. Um, great question from Philip. If the Fed, we're, I, we just so happen to be bopping around macro and crypto. I, I'm not intending it that way. I'm just reading them as I see them. If the Fed continues to keep U.S. markets strong with liquidity and the dollar stays strong, as the rest of the world's economies weaken, can the U.S. alone stay strong? I don't know, I'll say. I don't know because it very much Great depends question. what happens with government spending. And that very much depends on politics, which at the moment is totally paralyzed. And we don't know for how much longer it is going to be paralyzed. We've mm. talked so far about spending is going to be increasing. And I do believe that is especially going to be concentrated in some of the key sectors of one defense and two social spending. If unemployment is going up, you have to keep people you know, you have you have to match. You have to meet your social spending requirements, but everything else, I don't know what's going to happen with that, and that has a lot to do with how the U.S. economy does. There are signs that a lot of the growth that we've been seeing so far, not just in manufacturing but also in employment, have largely come from increased government spending, and how long that can continue is going to go down to politics. And I'm. Can I say this, Maggie? I'm so glad I'm not American this particular yeah. year. There have been many yeah. years when I wish I were, but not this year. It is going to be very confusing and very stressful yeah. for many of you. No, I I know. I feel like, I think a lot of us feel that fatigue, believe me. Um, we're always happy to be American, but it's like it's a it's a very trying time. Although I'm gonna venture to say that, you know, we find no matter when we talk to people around the world, that everyone's feeling a little exhausted, right? And internally, there are problems everywhere. And I always yeah. say this, you folks who are frequent listeners know, um, Tommy Thornton joked a long time ago that it's a bear market in political leadership. <laughs> and I think yes. that is a and global that is, statement. That's a global yeah, statement. That uh, is that is tragic. And, you know, I say that and I live in Europe and Europe is a very big mess. Also, yeah. I mean, even worse, I live in Spain, which is an even messier part. Yeah. But you look that. around, we have, we have, crisis in Africa right now. We have, you know, the, the, everywhere there are some big problems that we are facing. And 
Um, it gets frustrating yeah. because we've seen that the U.S. is capable of digging itself out of some holes before. The U.S. is the power that the world looks to when yeah. it comes to upholding certain values and leading in terms of entrepreneurship and technological innovation. And to start to see that get stymied by political conflict, it's it's frustrating. And you're totally right. It's not just the United States, which is, again, the what is it? The, um, the lack of political leadership. The phrase he used was brilliant. Oh, uh, oh, his phrase was, it's a bear market in political leadership. Bear market. In but everywhere, <laughs> but everywhere, everywhere you look. Um, yeah. So yeah, it does feel like something's got to change um, and we kind of need to focus on moving the human race forward. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, I see a question coming in. Let me see if we can, uh, we're not going to, you know what? I'm not even going to start it because then we'll be so over. Um, but your questions were fantastic today as always. Oh, all right. I'm gonna squeeze one more in from Doug. Do you perceive Bitcoin could become a currency for BRICS as none of those countries seem to trust other currencies? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think Bitcoin will actually ever replace any fiat currencies. I think it is always going to be an alternative, and we should be grateful that that choice does exist. But I don't see it being adopted by any governments, largely because I can't see any governments willing, being willing to give up some kind of monetary control. I do expect us to see a BRICS token. I do think they're going to get their act together and realize that it's in their beneficial interest to come up with something that offers an alternative to the dollar, especially when it comes to trading amongst themselves, and especially when it comes to global commodities. But um, Bitcoin, no. Some other kind of cryptographic token, yes. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm glad we squeezed that one in. Um, Noelle, we really made our way around a lot of topics today. It's been absolutely fascinating. We always love when you're on because we get to stick our feet in both the macro and crypto world. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Maggie. Always fun to talk to you. Fantastic stuff. Thanks for all the great questions. Uh, I am not going to be with you tomorrow. Ash will be here in the hot seat, uh, but uh, same time as usual. Uh, so roll up for that and make sure you go check out Harry's interview. Thanks, everybody. Take care and good luck out there. Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache, but it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, Crypto Tax Calculator focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. It's as simple as connecting your wallet, pulling in all your transactions, and following the automated suggestions to quickly and accurately calculate your tax obligations. Finally, 2024 is a year when crypto investors can do their taxes with speed and confidence. Make taxes this year easy and affordable with Crypto Tax Calculator. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get a 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout.